A few years ago, seven to be exact, my firstborn son, Jeremiah, had just arrived. I mean, this is two or three weeks after he was born. My wife and I were heading off to bed. You know how newborns are. They, they, they tend to cry a lot. We're pretty tired people. I wasn't that tired because at the time I was wearing earplugs quite a bit at night, much to the chagrin of my wife. Um, I, that was probably not a good move. <laughs> but I slept pretty well. But uh, she was pretty tired. We were both pretty tired. It was about 12.45 at night. Jeremiah, his crying little self, was just going to sleep. And I was just going to sleep. I was on my bed drifting off into a deep sleep when all of a sudden the doorbell rings. I look over at the clock. It's 1245. I'm like, what in the world? Who could be at my door at 1245 at night? And so I get up and I go downstairs and I look out my peephole and uh, there's no one there. I open up the door. I don't know if this is what I should have done, uh, but I step outside and I look around. There's no one there. So I'm like, you know, probably just some kids, you know, having a good time at night, it's late. And so I go, I lock the door, I go back upstairs, and I go to bed. A few minutes later, of course, I'm drifting back off to sleep at this point. A few minutes later, I hear my back door, and my dog, my little foo-foo, daisy dog, my little white fluff ball that is no longer with us, she's going berserk, and Jeremiah's crying. And the back door is rattling, and I'm getting up, and I'm getting a little bit anxious here. Somebody's trying to break into my house. So I did what every good law-abiding citizen in America would do. I got out the old Smith & Wesson, 38 Special, and I loaded it up. Five shots, the revolver. David, by the way, the, the author of our psalm here, how many stones did he pick up when he went? Five, right? Five shot. And I loaded it up and I headed down the stairs. A little bit anxious at this point. The door was still rattling. I knew I was going to confront someone here. And I turned the corner and I look out on my deck and there is an assailant. Someone seeking to attack my house seeking to take the life of my wife and my newborn son. And so I lift the gun. And I say, you better get out of here, as loud as I can. And you know what else I did? I, I kind of turned the gun a little bit because I saw that on a movie once. I thought it looked kind of cool. Get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. And so he sees me and runs. And then I, the next thing I know, he's back. And he's popped up over the kitchen sink out the window. I'm like, why is this guy not leaving? And so I, I approach him, still shouting. I was under control, by the way. I didn't shout anything obscene. Shouting at him, get off my property. You're not welcome here. Pointing the gun in his face. And I get all the way up to the window, and he's ducking down at this point. And I am tapping the muzzle of my 38 Special on the window. And he's still there. What is this guy doing? And all of a sudden, I hear my phone start to ring. <laughs> and I see him stand up and take a few steps back, holding his lit up cell phone. And I realize this guy must know me. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
And so I look at my phone, it's Jamie. It's one of my best friends from Ohio. Him and his wife, his wife was also ducking. I did not know this at the time, under the window. And they had come down from Ohio to surprise us for a surprise visit and congratulate us for our newborn child. Now, you can imagine my emotion at that moment. Uh, I, I had gone from anxiety, fear, what am I going to see? What am I going to do when I confront this individual trying to break into my house? To extreme relief, and then automatically to extreme anger. I was mad at my friend. You can imagine the adrenaline pumping through my veins. I immediately, when I found out it was my friend and not a foe, I immediately got this splitting headache. I was just sitting down at my kitchen table and taking a deep breath. Well, I went outside. I hugged him. I said, I'm glad you're who you are. And then I said, you are an idiot. You're an idiot. You almost got shot. Well, this is the exact same, not the exact same. It's a similar situation that we find David in here in Psalm 4. David finds himself distressed, pressed in on every side by his assailants, his enemies, his attackers. He is facing the full onslaught of the attacks of his enemies. And so immediately in verse 1, David cries out to God. He does what anyone with any faith in God would do at this moment. He cries out to God in his distress. And we see here a faith-filled petition in verse 1. His petition, look at it, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You know, anyone in a moment of distress can cry out for help. Any, anyone can cry out for deliverance. But David's was one of, uh, it was unique in that it was full of, of absolute faith. We see that in two different ways here in verse 1. Right away he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He has a unique title here for God. In fact, this is the only time in all of the Psalter that David calls God by this title, God of my righteousness. You see, he's not coming to God in the midst of his distress on his own merit, based on his own righteousness. He's dependent upon God and full of faith in God to deliver him not only from the, uh, the current situation that he finds himself in, but he's also dependent on him for his righteousness. He's dependent upon him for his eternal state. And so his, his cry here is full of faith. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. And we also see right after that, uh, we also see something else that makes this a faith-filled petition. It says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. You have given me relief when I was in distress. The second way David's petition is full of faith is seen right here between these two cries of mercy. Right between, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, and be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David is crying out to God, hear me, hear me. And all the while, he is remembering the, the vast amount of times that God has, in fact, delivered him in the past. You see, he's calling out to God who has a track record of being a deliverer. His, his cry here is full of faith. Now, I love the imagery used in verse 1 here. David says, you have given me this word relief. It means specifically, you have given me room. 
you have given me room. When the enemies were pressed in on every side, entrapping me, ensnaring me, you've given me deliverance and relief. You've given me room, almost like room to breathe. Now, there's one thing you should know about me. Uh, I appreciate my space. I think I'm like most men, I guess, probably. Uh, I don't like... I don't like to be confined. I don't like to sit too close to anyone. Like when I'm out with, out with Pastor David to lunch, he and I are the same. You know, we kind of pick the biggest chairs, you know, and kind of add a table if we need to. Um, and I, I don't like close talkers. You know, if, if, you're, if you're coming up to me and you're invading my little personal space of comfort, I, I tend to maybe take a step back or I turn a little bit sideways or something like that. Now, if Pastor Jeremy were here, he would probably take four or five steps back. He, he, doesn't, like, he doesn't like his space invaded even more. Uh, but, but here in, in Psalm 4, uh, we see that uh, David needed this room to breathe. His enemies are entrenched on every side. They are pressing in on him. And he cries out to God, hear me, God. Answer me. Deliver me just as you have done so many times before. And he does so humbly, full of faith, not based on his own merit, not based on his own righteousness, but he comes dependent upon God completely uh, for his righteousness and also for deliverance in this current state that he finds himself in. And you know, I hope that as we, as we work through this psalm tonight, that you're busy in your minds personalizing the words of Scripture. The psalms were written and sung uh, for and by the people of God. And, and in them we find every emotion, every human emotion. We find every human circumstance and, and situation. And like David, you at this very moment might find yourself being attacked, being pressed in, being confined, in need of real deliverance. And my prayer for you tonight is that... Uh, that your, your prayers would echo the faith-filled petition of David, knowing that he didn't stand before God on his own righteousness, and neither do we. We don't come before God uh, having merited any kind of favor. We come before God dependent completely upon his grace and his mercy that he has shown us in Christ. And Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have a great high priest, one who has gone before and, and been tempted in every way like as we are yet without sin. And so therefore we can come boldly to the throne of grace because his death, burial, and resurrection has not only forgiven you, but has clothed you in his righteousness. We come boldly before his throne of grace, and the Bible tells us we find help in our time of need. My prayer for you tonight is that I, that I hope that your prayers echo that of King David in his faith-filled petition, because like David, God had proven himself faithful to deliver time and time and time and time again. David had called out for deliverance again and again, and he knew that in this particular situation, God would again prove himself faithful. Not only do we see a faith-filled petition here in Psalm 4, verse 1, we also, we also find a secure position. Uh, David finds his confidence in his secure position. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But no. That the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears 
when I call to him. In verse 1, David's gaze is directed upward. He is crying out to God. He is, he is seeking deliverance from God, the God of his righteousness. And in verses 2 through 3, it's almost as if he lowers his gaze and his, his attackers are so close, so pressing in on him, he looks at them right in the eyes. And he has these words to say, O men, better translated, O sons of men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's almost like he got right up to the window with that muzzle and started tapping on the glass. He's challenging them in, in his face. How long? How long will you love vain words? How long will you seek after lies? But David's position here is secure. His trust is in the deliverer, the source of his righteousness. But as he glares in the eyes of his attackers, he challenges them with the folly of their own position. They are seeking to shame his honor. Who is his honor? His honor is the one who anointed him king over Israel. They are seeking to shame the very king of all kings. Not a very secure position. <laughs> and David knows and experiences this, this secure position. And they, on the other hand, in an opposite way, are chasing after security, chasing after lies, chasing after vanity, chasing after things that have no substance. But David's position, again, is strikingly opposite. His position is secure. Even while he's pressed in on every side, he knows from verse 3 that the Lord has set him apart. He knows that the Lord has set him apart. He has a secure position. He, his, his cry is like Paul's cry in Romans, in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can stand against us? I want you to listen to, to another one of Paul's wonderful encouragements in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just listen. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Think about, think about the psalm. He's pressed in. He is afflicted. He is uh, pressed down, but not crushed. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And later on, he concludes the chapter by saying this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature, nature is being renewed day by day. Paul understood the secure position he, we have in Christ. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the, the things that are seen are transient, that is, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. After crying out to God for deliverance, David then turns his gaze and looks at his attackers straight in the eye. And he says, I have a very present help in time of trouble. Where's yours? 
I have a secure position. What's your position? You're, you're chasing after folly. You're loving lies and vain words. I have a God who has set me apart, who hymns me in behind and before, a God who hears me when I call. Where's yours? My God is for me. And even though you stand against me, my God will reign victorious over all, his, all of his enemies because my God always, always wins. David's position was secure. I want you to grasp this truth tonight. I don't want you to let this go. Um, you know, in our, in our frailty and in our sin, our temptation, when we face the pressures of attackers, when we face, uh, when we face the things that are pressing in on us in life, the temptation that we have is to become just like David's attackers, to seek after vain things, to love vain words, to seek security for ourselves. That position is nowhere near as secure. In fact, it's, it's not secure at all. Uh, our security is found in God and in God alone. Like David, when we face the onslaught of the enemy, there is no more secure place to be than to be set apart by God himself and also on your knees in prayer because he hears you, as verse 3 says, when, he calls, when you call to him. By the way, isn't that amazing? God Almighty hears us when we call to him. I love the tense of this verb here used. It's, it's immediate. He hears us as soon as the words come out of our mouth. It's not as if we are calling and leaving a voicemail at the tone and hoping somehow God later that day or maybe tomorrow checks his voicemail and then answers. God immediately hears us when we call to him. Cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you, Peter reminds us. And right there is our secure position. So we've seen David's faith-filled petition, his secure position. And in verse 4 through 7, we find God's sufficient provision. God's sufficient provision. Let's read 4 through 7. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In these verses, we find uh, God's sufficient provision. And you know, I struggled with how to interpret this, this portion of the psalm. Uh, David is either talking to, continuing to talk to his attackers, those pressing in on him, or he's once again turned his gaze and have be, has begun uh, talking with and conversing with another group of people altogether. Now, knowing that this, this uh, and I read the, the superscript here at the beginning, knowing that this psalm was written to the choir master with stringed instruments, knowing that this psalm was to be sung in the context of temple worship, it seems right that David has now turned his gaze and has begun talking to those worshipers in the temple, instructing them on how they ought to live, what kind of faith, what kind of actions they must demonstrate in light of these pressing attacks. Uh, and, and furthermore, you probably recognize it, uh, Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin, is quoted in the New Testament. 
Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So Paul clearly thought that, uh, that these words were directed to the people of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used them uh, in, in writing to the elect of God at the church of Ephesus. So I'm going to side with Paul here, not the majority of the commentators, and say that right now David has, has once again shifted his gaze from his attackers and has stepped into the congregation and has begun to address the worshipers of God and how they are to deal with, how they are to respond to these pressing attacks from the outside. David turns to the congregation and with the experience of past deliverance and knowing the secure position that he has in Christ, he addresses people who just like himself are under attack, under uh, pressure, pressed in and trapped. And to them and to us, he says, this situation, whatever situation you find yourself in, may cause you to be angry. Your enemies may cause you a deep-seated anger in your heart. He says, be angry and do not sin. In other words, don't let that anger cause you to lash out in revenge. That's not your job. Remember what Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Instead, he gives us an alternative. Look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder on, in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Ponder and be silent. You know, David's speaking to me right here. I don't know, I'm probably, probably a lot like you all. Uh, the busyness of the day, I don't have a whole lot of time to just sit and think. And uh, oftentimes when I go to bed, that, that provides the best time of day for me just to be quiet and to think. And instead, like some, most of the time, I just want to go to sleep. But I find myself, my mind starts to race. I find myself thinking about events of the day. I find myself thinking about conversations, possibly conflicts, plans, events, all these things going through my head. And eventually, I, I'm so worked up in my mind, I can't go to sleep. I hate that. Well, David says... In this situation, it's not all bad. You're feeling pressed. You're feeling attacked. You're in distress, in need of deliverance. Ponder the secure position that you know in Christ. Ponder that position and be silent. Be silent. You're not pondering how you're going to destroy your attackers the next morning. You're pondering on the faithfulness of our God and you're trusting him. Look at verse five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in God. You know, oftentimes as I as I lay there thinking instead of sleeping, I'll slip my hand into Janelle's hand and, and just start to pray. Just start to pray, knowing that that God hears me, <laughs> knowing that secure position that God has placed me in in Christ. God has set me apart. God hears me right now when I call to him. In verse 6, David continues to reveal this, uh, this sufficient provision of God. And he, and he, and he uh, warns. He warns of a danger to the people of God. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. It says, there are many who will say, who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain 
and wine abound. David's still talking to the congregation here. And he warns them that uh, there are times when one of the worst things we could possibly do is to seek to define for God precisely how God should deliver us. These, these, these members of the congregation, just like he was, are under attack. They are under attack. And he warns them of the danger of defining for God how God should deliver them. David warns against that by showing that there's something even greater. There's, there's a provision of God that reaches beyond this physical need that we think we might see to validate God's favor. You see, these worshipers, we're on the right track in verse 6. They're calling out to God, but they've missed God's sufficient provision in the midst of the trials. They've, they've missed something. They're saying, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David says, as you ponder, as you think, remember, God has supplied everything that you need. David teaches us that even when the Lord blesses those prayers, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, God had somehow blessed them. They have wine. They have their grain. It seems as if they have every reason to be full of joy. David says, ah, I've got more joy. I've got more joy. God has given him a provision, uh, and this may be the provision that, the only provision that you have, but it's a provision that is precisely what you need. It's a provision that, that trumps the importance of those things that we think we need and sustains us through the most grievous times in life, the, those most urgent attacks, those most urgent moments for deliverance. Those times when we are pressed in on every side, God gives us exactly what we need. It's oftentimes not what we think we need or even what we've asked for. God gives us what? Joy. Joy. David says, in light of those who seek the favor of the Lord, in visible ways, God has given him more joy in his heart. Even more joy than when grain and wine abound for those who wanted to see the tangible sign of God's favor. David says, what you really need in those times is joy. It's not immediate vindication. It's not material blessing. It's not comfort. It's not that God would validate your position in him by routing the enemies. It's joy in the midst of the attack, in the midst of the trial. What you need is joy. You know, I'm reminded of the, the last chapter in Philippians. I love, I love that letter Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And in that last chapter, we remember Paul in, in Philippians is literally shackled to a prison guard. He's in prison. You know, David has his attackers. They're pressing in on him. He can't get away, and, and neither can Paul. He is in prison. He is shackled to a prison guard. What does he command the church? He tells us to have joy again and again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say Rejoice. He says, oh, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what, it, what it's like to have nothing. But I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And later on, he ends that glorious section by declaring, my God shall meet all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. David here declares to the congregation that sometimes all you need is joy. 
All you need is joy. James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Nehemiah reminded the people of God that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And likewise, David, here in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the attacks, in the midst of needing to be delivered, he says, God's greatest provision for me is not wine. It's not great, uh, great barns full of, of, of grain. It's simply joy in the midst of it all. You know, I wonder, I wonder how many of us need to change the way we pray. You see, in verse 6, there are those that say, who will show us some good? It's not a, not a wrong prayer. Lift up the light of your face upon us. That's a good prayer. But maybe we need to, instead of recognizing when the Lord blesses us with the light of his face upon us as, as merely comfort or as merely material blessings, maybe we need to recognize the, the blessing of the provision of joy in the midst of those trials. Perhaps we should learn from one who has gone before enduring those struggles and just begin to pray for joy, begin trusting and experience real joy. Perhaps we should remember our secure position in Christ, remember the fact that he has set us apart, remember the fact that he hears us when we call, and allow that truth to, to transform our hearts of despair, our hearts of doubt, into hearts full of inexplicable joy. You know, David, the anointed king, he went through all these trials. And he learned the power of joy firsthand. But these words are not merely David's words. These, these are the words of the blessed man we learned about in Psalm 1. There's an anointed king far greater than King David who declares these very words to us tonight, who endured far more suffering than David ever had to suffer. And this king of all kings stares at his enemy in the face, and he says, O sons of men, verse 2, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears us when we call to him. This, this prince of peace stands in the midst of the congregation, Hebrews reminds us, and he commands us to put our trust in him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is right now seated at the right hand of God. That's good. That's good. And so now Christ, seated at the right hand of God, offers us the precise provision that God wants us to have in the midst of these trials. Sometimes it's not immediate vindication. Sometimes it's not... Uh, it's not delivering us completely from our enemies. Sometimes it's not scattering our enemies right away. A lot of times, it's just joy. It's joy. Finally, in verse 8, we see where that joy, the joy of the Lord leads. It leads us to peaceful protection. Look at verse 8 with me. In peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Do you see where the joy of the Lord leads? It leads to peace. It leads to safety. What's the last thing 
someone who's being attacked, someone who is in dire need of deliverance, someone who is crying out for God to deliver them, what's the last thing you think they would do? I think I see it in verse 8. Lie down and go to sleep. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm under just huge distress, the last thing I want to do is sleep. Sleep escapes me. And here, uh, in verse 8, we see that the joy of the Lord, the joy provided in God's sufficient provision, uh, grants the psalmist peace. It's that peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, as Paul writes to the Philippians. Um, and by the way, where are the attackers? Where are those from whom David needs deliverance? The psalm does not, does not say but it does not say that they have been routed either. Uh, it's, it, it seems as if, as we read this, they're still pressing. They're still attacking. They're still there. But that doesn't matter. Because God has given him this secure position. God has given him this, this sufficient provision and joy. God has given him peace and rest. And in the face of his enemies, he's, he's lying down and he's going to sleep. He's resting in the security that he knows in his God. Now, some of us here tonight are, are listening to someone at the back door. There's that rattling. The dog's going crazy. There's an enemy, an attacker in our midst. The enemy is upon us. And these enemies are not friendly like my friend was. <laughs> They're not friendly. King David, yes, even King Jesus, calls us tonight. To cry out with a faith-filled petition. He calls us to remember our secure position in Christ. And to embrace this sufficient provision of joy in the midst of the circumstances. In the midst of the, the pressing attacks. And tonight as you go to sleep, you can rest. Rest in the peaceful protection that he gives us in Christ. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. Let's pray together.